is on a silent retreat, and so he's not here right now. But we have a fantastic guest with us. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is Father Michael Rapp. And he used to be um, a, the co-priest here. Co it was a little bit longer. Yeah. My sister. So if you don't know Father Mike, he's the best. He's currently at the cathedral. He was in Italy for six and a half years studying scriptural sciences. sciences. He's getting his doctorate in that. Um, you're fluent in Hebrew and English <laughs> and all sorts of things, um, and he's just going to give us a wonderful class tonight, so we're really excited to have him, so we'll just give a big round of applause. Okay, I'll tell you, we'll take a break in the middle, but I'll tell you. All right, well, it's good to be back at Lourdes. Um, I'm going to try to teach, thank you, uh, I'm going to try to teach the crowd here, so live streamers, um, God bless you. Welcome. I don't know. This was like a regular thing, the live stream. Yeah. It's kind of weird being back with the, the whole crew, but I love it. It's good to be uh, back together, I think, as a church. This is a community thing. Um, I'm not Father Brian. Uh, thank you for the introduction. I was here at Lourdes for a couple of years, and uh, but have over the last few months been assigned at the cathedral downtown right next to the Capitol. And um, I knew that I, I, I was reminded that I was not at Lourdes this evening when before my 5.30 mass, I got a text from the sacristan saying, uh, gunshots in the area, don't come in yet. And then they cleared and I went in and everything. But luckily we don't have to worry about that too much down here. But pray for peace downtown. It's always a little bit of unrest. Um, so. This is, a, this is a pretty good crowd. I think it's one of the difficulties with the RCIA at Lourdes is there's so many people that it's hard to get to know everybody. Hopefully you're getting to know Father Brian and each other in some, in some ways um, over the course of this class. Uh, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and loving Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for your many graces, for the way that you made the world and that you love us all. We thank you for the gift of your word, for speaking to us in the person of Jesus Christ, for saving us through him, through his death and resurrection. Thank you for uh, your presence in our lives, and thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that inspires us. It gives us life. It gives us grace. It continually draws us back to you, and that unifies us together. And thank you for your beautiful law, love of God, and love of neighbor. We ask, Lord, that you inspire us, that you be with us tonight, um, that you give us the grace to um, encounter you in encountering your word, your revelation, and scripture and tradition. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so I think I was asked to talk about scripture and tradition. I don't know exactly where you're at at this point in the, how long have you been at this RCIA thing? Several weeks. Several weeks? Four weeks. Okay. So it's still pretty early on. Um, I don't like wearing shoes, so I'm not wearing shoes. I usually like to give the explanation that I, um, that when Moses entered into the presence of God, God told him, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground, so anytime you're speaking about God or you're 
gathered together. Two or two or more are gathered in my name, and there am I in their midst. That's kind of an excuse because I don't like shoes, <laughs> and I don't want to wear them. Uh, <laughs> so we're talking about scripture and tradition. Um, I wanted to start with the big picture. Um, oh wait, let me ask a question: Is how do questions work? Um, is that just? Okay, so feel free at any point um, while I'm talking to um, just yeah, jump in and ask questions of any sort. Um, it can be about whatever we're talking about or your random questions about catechesis and the Catholic Church. Okay, so here's the big story. Big story goes like this. Uh, God made everything that we know, made the universe and, um, and, and made the world that we know made it beautiful, everything is good, everything is profound. If you look up in the sky, you can be uh, filled with wonder uh, at the beauty of creation. If you go out to the mountains, you're filled with wonder at the beauty of creation. And uh, forever, human beings have been looking up in the sky and saying, what, where did that come from? And what does it mean? Um, the Judeo-Christian tradition says that uh, there is a meaning to the whole thing and that it has to do with God creating everything um, to be known and um, to make a beautiful setting. We call it paradise in Genesis, but a beautiful setting where uh, human beings are meant to live in harmony with each other, with nature, and with God. It's supposed to be a setting of paradise. Um, but the world has fallen, that um, the world is not perfect as it was meant to be, or as it is meant to be that uh, in the human heart there's disruption, uh, there's darkness, there's confusion, there's fear and anger. Um, we call it original sin, a result of the fall. That human beings from the very beginning have been rebelling against even our like, highest potential. You know? um, unfortunately, so you, you, you can get a sense from say popular culture about the potential of the world and of human beings. So something like, um, imagine all the people living life in peace. You know? uh, all you need is love. These are great phrases. Uh, and in some way, the Christian story is the answer to that hope. Um, but we can't really figure it out ourselves. I don't know if you've ever tried to live perfectly and with love for your neighbor and for uh, your enemy and uh, to kind of be at rest in a perfect peace in yourself. Um, we need need help. That's uh, that's our claim. Now you can argue with that. You could say if we could just figure it out. We've been trying for at least 200,000 years. Um, it's been a long time. I like to liken original sin. This is kind of going back lessons, right? Um, okay, well, I'll go back to the story and then I'll talk about original sin. So the story is that the world has fallen. It's not what it's meant to be. And that God is wants to restore the world to that paradise. So God becomes a human being and shows us the way to love and um, takes on the problems on himself, uh, is crucified and killed, an act of love and self-sacrifice, and then is risen from the dead, a statement by this eternal God saying, this is the one to follow. This is the one who will save you. And, um, and because of the act of Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, the world is being restored to paradise. And in the meantime, 
we all have hope for a life after this life that awaits this kind of culmination of paradise, that is heaven. Now, the end of the Bible talks about the wedding between heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem descending upon the world. And this is the image of our hope for the future, a hope that we know, hope isn't just like wishful thinking, hope is like, well, if I know Jesus, then I know this is happening. I know that there's gonna be salvation in my life with whatever problems I'm facing and that there's salvation for the world. Um, God is patient, so he has to win us over and uh, it takes time. We live in the midst of that story and uh, between Jesus' coming and revealing the way of salvation, um, the Holy Spirit coming into the world, saving souls, that is restoring us, healing us, sanctifying us, and then uh, our participation as the body of Christ, the church, uh, in the sanctification of the world, like, like doing Jesus' action, sacrificing ourselves, and uh, sharing in his mission to uh, make the world a paradise again. Um, so it's the good creation, the fall, salvation, and the restoration of all things. Does that make sense? That is a quick story. That's the big story. Um, just a note on original sin. I like to talk about original sin. Um, I think it's pretty intuitive to people that the world has fallen. Um, unfortunately, that's a reality. I like to mention the sort of common phrase that we use um, with children growing up. Whenever they suffer or run into a hard thing, we say, welcome to the real world. And that's kind of depressing, but <laughs> there's something that we know that unfortunately we have to communicate to children. It's like, this is gonna be tough um, because the world is falling. You know? It's not what it's meant to be. Um, another uh, analogy I use, but I don't think it can be reduced to this, is uh, the process of evolution. You know, you think of survival of the fittest. Um, it's fight or flight. It's kill or be killed. And we've come from a process as like this evolving animal to the point where God could infuse us with this um, ability to see things differently than the other animals, an ability to appreciate beauty around us, to know ourselves and, uh, and to think about things. And then also the capacity or the, the will, the freedom to love, to choose to love. And in a specific way, not just to get what we're trained to get, or hoping to get, or instinctually, but actually to sacrifice ourselves out of love for another one. Um, but that process leaves us with a lot of scars. Well, this is kind of an evolutionary process where, um, unfortunately, you can see it. You look around at all the wars, all the strife, even the confusion in our society or among people, even broken relationships in our own lives. Um, we see that a lot of life, instinctually, comes down to survival. And survival means power, and it means aggression at times, it means uh, manipulation and coercion. Uh, we have lots of tricks. Um, but that's not what we are, right? Our conviction is that we're good. And we're not just this animals that's randomly set on a trajectory that kind of has to survive. And, uh, and we know that Christ can bring us um, into a kind of a fullness of life, and the fullness of what we're capable of that love and that uh, understanding of the world and understanding of God. So uh, we start at that point of God trying to reveal himself to us. Um, God who is invisible, God who is somehow unknowable. People have been trying for 200,000 years. 
and coming up with good theories about God, um, very interesting things. But we hit a kind of threshold, a ceiling of what we can know. And uh, in the end, the only way that we could come to know God fully, truly, was uh, for God to reveal himself in the world. God to become a human being. So open your Bibles to uh, John 1. That's the prologue of John. Did you bring Bibles? No. <laughs> I thought you were students of Father Brian Larkin. <laughs> All right, I'll read it. I'll read it. Put down my beer. <laughs> Sipping. End of the day, people. Yeah, I have a Bible. <laughs> All right. Here's uh, John 1. It just starts. So this is kind of... Uh, this is an, an apostle of Jesus, one of his friends, who lived with him, knew him very well, but was also like a fan of the big picture, was asking the biggest questions possible. That's John's gospel. Um, wanting to know God uh, profoundly. And he starts the story this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him... Nothing has been made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The idea is that, um, that God has a word to reveal himself to us. He can speak to us, and he's speaking to us through this, um, this person of Jesus Christ. Um, it's kind of abstract, no? This word will become flesh and, and dwells among us. In verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father. So this word who was with God has become a human being and dwells among us. The word of the father, the revelation of the father. We want to know God, then you look at Jesus. That's his message. Um, let's see, further down. There we go. Okay, verse 18, John 1, 18, finishing this sort of um, poem on all of Revelation and how Jesus fits into this as revealing God. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. And that's where John's going to start. And that's actually where every Christian starts. If you want to know God, you know Jesus. And Jesus will be uh, what he says in his own words in John's gospel, the way, the truth, and the life. Um, so this is our plan. Um, that God is, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And we know that um, part of the human experience uh, throughout history, and I think um, most people would recognize this, is that we have a desire to know. We have a desire to know God. We have something built into us, like a capacity for knowing God. There was a, um, there was a philosopher called Jean-Paul Sartre. You know him? Jean-Paul Sartre. He, um, he said that it, it, there's, a, there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every human being. Um, he also didn't believe in God <laughs> and ran into a lot of trouble for that reason. Uh, but his statement is true, and I use an, a, a very keen observer of human nature and uh, new people, that in the heart of every person there is this God-shaped hole, that we desire to know God. Um, and that would be frustrating if we couldn't. Uh, but here Jesus has made him known. So the question that we're going to get into is how do we come to know Jesus? 
And by knowing Jesus, how do we come to know God? How do we encounter God? How do we fulfill that hole that we have, that desire in every person for a relationship with God? Or uh, even relationship is a little funky. If you think of other religions, not every religion believes that God is personal. So I don't know if you, any of you from Boulder, you know Buddhism? <laughs> uh, God is it's like an energy. God is even a funny word. Uh, for Buddhists, God is, is the, the sort of um, power, transcendent power that is through all things. And it's kind of inaccessible. Um, but it's, it's really a, a kind of particularly Judeo-Christian notion that God is a person, or God is a trinity of persons. I don't know if you've gotten to trinity. Well, anyway, no. some no. of you might be uh, familiar with that. But God is personal. So that means God can be known in the way that we know other people, maybe differently, um, obviously more profound than other people, but um, God revealing himself in Jesus makes himself available to, um, to come to know. John also says, for a more abstract kind of poetic way, that because Jesus has revealed God, now we know that God is love. We didn't know that before. What did we know? That God was an energy, that God was maybe um, an entity out there, a creating being that doesn't really have much interest in the world, or we don't know the interest. Jesus reveals that God is love. Okay, so, so what were the ancient Hebrews saying? Yeah, the ancient Hebrews, they knew God to be, so we share the conviction that God began um, this sort of strict revelation of himself in the prophets of uh, among the Hebrews, um, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, and the writers of the Old Testament, that God had begun to whisper into the darkness about himself, but had not made himself fully known as, as such. So they um, started developing a relationship with God that had truths to it, um, that they considered themselves, the, the people Israel, um, the Jews of old, considered themselves like a collective child of God. And so already you had this relationship with God who, the, about which the conviction is that God is a father. Um, they use a term like God had revealed his name as mercy, which is similar to love. But, but so, so were they looking at it from the fact of a one-to-one -one relationship with Judeo-Christians? Where in their case, they're looking at, well, I only have a prophet between me and God, like Moses or Isaiah or Ezekiel, somebody like that. Is that what? Yeah, it's kind of God speaking through the clouds, okay. God speaking through the darkness. So you don't know this God personally. I mean, there are these few moments where, um, for example, Moses asks to, to see God, and God reveals his glory to Moses. And the scene is depicted as God showing his back to Moses, but Moses can't even look because it's too powerful. The idea of which is for the Jews, you can't see God. Because God is unseen, like John, who's a good Jew, is saying, we didn't know that this could happen. This is miraculous. This is unexpected. But um, because you can't see God, no one has ever seen God um, or heard his voice the way that they would with Jesus. So the, re the full revelation of God is, is uh, in Christ. And they didn't necessarily expect that either. Uh, Jews don't believe that God became a human being. You know, that's uh, kind of... that's. What Paul says is a scandal to the Jews. 
they take offense to that. They say, no, that's not possible. Just like uh, Muslims will say the same thing. Like, God is personal, but could never be a human being. So it just doesn't even make sense. And it is crazy. It's a crazy thing that Catholics believe and that all Christians believe. Um, and I hope you will, <laughs> or you do. Uh, I certainly do, and as mysterious as that is. Okay, so um, coming to know God, the question is, how can you know God? So here's a question I have for you is, um, what if I were to ask you, how would you respond to a question like, um, tell me about your father? Okay, start, start spinning a kind of an answer to that. Tell me about your father. What do you know about your father? Okay, you might start with some biographical facts if you're really nerdy like me. Well, he was born in 1943, and he was to these parents, and he came from this place, whatever. That's good, that's information. That's something about your father. You might say, um, I was having one of the hardest times in my life, and uh, my father showed up. And um, it's one of the most meaningful and powerful expressions of who he is to me. You know, like uh, the meaning of this person. Um, what if, a uh, similar question, tell me about your wife. Tell me about your boyfriend or girlfriend. You know? So there's facts about a person, and then there's something of like, uh, I'd love for you to meet them. You, know? you need to get to know them. And so that's the kind of difference here between kind of knowing God. I want you to hold on to that kind of concept if you if you've got it at this point. Knowing facts about something or about someone, and then knowing them, knowing them by living with them, knowing their idiosyncrasies, knowing uh, their intentions, knowing their personality and characteristics. Um, the Christian who has come to love Jesus, come to know and love Jesus, wants to know everything about him. They want, we want to know facts. We want to know, the, we want to hear the voice. We want to encounter this person. And um, so we're going to look at some of the ways that God um, reveals himself to us, that Jesus reveals himself to us, as mysterious as that um, concept is. Um, okay. So we're going to talk about scripture and tradition. This is, these are the two means um, that Catholics will talk about for the revelation of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, by scripture, we mean basically the Bible. And by tradition, we mean uh, the way that the Bible is passed on and interpreted and understood through time. Um, and these two become the means by which God reveals himself. I'm going to read a quote from, um, this is a document called Dei Verbum. It's a, what's called a um, dogmatic constitution on the revelation of God from the uh, Second Vatican Council. So basically, uh, 50 years ago, 55 years ago, um, the church brought all of its leaders together, all the bishops together, uh, to talk about how do we um, how do we speak about Jesus in the modern world? Can we um, can we talk about uh, can we talk about God and present the message of the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ, in a way that makes sense to people in our time? Um, at every stage throughout history, 
Um, people are different. Culture is different. The interests are different. And um, as things change, the church wants to speak in um, into the world in a particular way. So in uh, 65, they uh, approached different questions. And this is um, some of what they came up with about uh, revelation of God. It says, hence, there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture, both of them flowing from the same divine wellspring in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. For sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as, as it is consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit, while sacred tradition takes the word of God entrusted by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit to the apostles and hands it on to their successors in its full purity so that led by the light of the spirit of truth, they may in proclaiming it preserve this word of God faithfully, explain it, and make it more widely known. So the kind of answer to this riddle of how, uh, how is Jesus known is that Jesus is known by the experience of people, uh, I won't say the church, that is the people of God. My podium's in the way. that somehow the church, the people, encounter this person of Jesus Christ. And then uh, from the very beginning, these people who were amazed by his saving work and what, where the, what they came to know about God through Jesus started passing on the tradition. So the people who were around him, like John and the other apostles, uh, enamored with this encounter with God in Jesus, uh, impressed by the idea that everyone is saved um, by Jesus and his, his death and resurrection, and then um, commissioned by Jesus, told by Jesus, I, uh, I have been given all authority on, in heaven and on earth. I want you to go and teach all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it begins with people's encounter with Jesus. Um, and it's an encounter that made sense to them, in part because they walked with him and he taught them, um, but also, Jesus had said, I breathe on you the Holy Spirit. I give to you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, which inspires you and helps you to know everything. Okay? So we want to come to know Jesus. Uh, we're asking about how do you have this personal encounter? The apostles did. And then how do we come to, to have that same kind of encounter? Um, oh, I was going to say, turn your Bibles to. I'm going to read you another quote from the Bible. <laughs> So we're walking with John and John's gospel. If you come to the end of John's gospel, he's going to say something about what he's written. And I think it can be said about everything that was written about Jesus. So John in, in his gospel is going to tell us a lot of stories about Jesus. He's going to tell us about miracle stories, different things that he's done, different things that he's said and taught. Um, about, he's going to tell us about this very important nucleus, like the heart of who Jesus is, which is his, uh, his mission, was to go to Jerusalem, to die on the cross for salvation, um, to leave his people with uh, sacramental life. Do this in memory of me. Here is my body. I'm giving it up for you, the sacrifice of the cross. Uh, do this in memory of me. 
and then to rise from the dead. This is the kind of core. And then um, we want to know as much as we can about this Jesus. And he says, says this at the end of um, John's Gospel, at the end of chapter 20, um, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is saying what I think can be said um, about all of the New Testament writers, all the Bible writers. I've told you important things, but it's not nearly everything that can be said about this one. So though, for those of us who come to know Jesus and want to know everything, um, we can know a great deal from these writings by the people who, um, who knew Jesus personally and were inspired by the Holy Spirit in a particular way to carry out a mission. Um, but they're not going to tell us everything, everything about Jesus. They're going to tell us what's essential. And so they're going to set a rule that we can't break from. Um, that, that sets a sort of standard by which all of the other experience has to be judged. Okay. Um, they're not going to tell us, he can't tell us everything, everything. But then we have the problem, we ask the question, so how do we come to know, um, how do we come to know the rest of the story? Because the story isn't over with Jesus um, dying and rising and um, ascending into heaven. You might ask the question that I ask frequently, Jesus, why didn't you stick around? People want to know you. Where, why'd you go? Um, have you ever asked that question? No? Um, I think in part, people are very skeptical, and uh, he was killed when he was around. Um, and I'm not sure that wouldn't happen all the time. <laughs> uh, he was very unpopular, frequently. Um, but a, just a beautiful, beautiful presence. But he gives us something of an answer. I gotta go look at my notes for this one. In uh, John 16, seven. So we look at John 16, seven. Jesus is gonna tell them about how he's going away, but that it's okay. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. Hold on. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is, is judged. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the spirit of truth, that's also the comforter he was talking about, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus says, I'm gonna go away, but it's okay, I don't have to, I don't have to reveal everything. I'm leaving you with the Holy Spirit, the one who has inspired the prophets, who spoke through the prophets, the one who has uh, inspired the disciples to understand Jesus and to know him, and then even to write about him, you know, the authors of the Bible. Um, and Jesus says, I'm going to send to you, and forever, until I come back, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, so that uh, the truth will be preserved and the truth will be known. Every truth that's necessary to, to fulfill this story, 
to save your souls and to restore that paradise. Um, Jesus is going, he's going to send that spirit to reveal all things. Right? And that Holy Spirit is always drawing us back to, um, back to Jesus. So when this document he talks about, there's two, uh, there's one wellspring of truth, of revelation, and then there's two different ways that is communicated to people, um, but they reconverge, that quote says. And the point is that it always comes back to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, that when God is revealing himself, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the church to try to teach and hand on the truth of Jesus is all coming back to trying to understand this great moment of revelation in this person of Jesus. Okay? Um, how many of you are Catholics? Okay. So y'all know, you can list for me some different ways that you come to know Jesus. Do any of you know Jesus? Raise your hand if you know Jesus. Oh, come on. Don't be shy. Um, well, the hope would be that everyone who claims this religion could say that they know Jesus. Not exhaustively. Not like, hey, I'm the authority. You need to come and talk to me if you want to know Jesus. I can't do that. Uh, but we do have lots of means of knowing Jesus that he has given to us. Um, can you think of some of them? Sacraments. Yeah, sacraments is a good one. Okay. All right, I'll say knowing Jesus. So we believe that uh, when you go to Mass, you encounter Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, in the Eucharist. That he has given us a way of, of like connecting with him in the deepest way, eating his body and drinking his blood. It's a ritual that you'll have to get into because it's um, kind of strange, um, but it is touching God, you could say. Um, in confession, we, th we hear the voice of God saying, I forgive you. I absolve you from your sins. Um, in baptism, um, we die with Jesus, and we rise and start sharing his life, as mysterious as that is. We're um, given the gift of the Holy Spirit that conforms our life to Jesus. So somehow, every Christian is a, is a Christ in the world, is anointed to somehow share in his mission and in his life in the world. It's a a sharing in Jesus' life, these sacraments. And you come to know Jesus through this. I think we can say that with conviction, as mysterious as it is. Um, how else do we know Jesus? Yeah, that's good. I heard two of them. Uh, through the Bible. You can read about him. Oh. Don't do that with your Bible. Uh, so you can read about him. There's a lot to know from the Bible. This is the inspired word of God. If you want to hear um, the Holy Spirit speaking about who Jesus is, then you read the Bible. It can inspire us to prayer. It can, um, it, it's, it's powerful, and it has a way not only to teach us like what he said, what he did um, in the past, but also communicating directly to us something about what he's saying to us, what he's doing in our lives. Um, I heard another one that is uh, through prayer. Now I'm in trouble. I'm going to set this down over here. Father Brian has a very fancy Bible. Because he uses it frequently. Um, but I want to be respectful to the scripture. Um, 
Okay, so uh, you've got the sacraments, Bible through prayer. This is a strange one. If you meet a Christian, they're going to say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And they tend to be talking about this one, right? Somehow, when I pray, I can talk to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, you probably think, you're weird, you have an imaginary friend. <laughs> I had an imaginary friend when I was a kid, and I talked to them, and now I don't. And that's a lot of people's experience, too. Um, but the Christian who has had this experience, about a 10 percent, of uh, knowing Jesus in prayer, uh, having this conviction, having um, somehow met God, and I love this, uh, there's this beautiful expression um, among um, our Protestant brothers and sisters. They say uh, that when they encountered God, they were asked to, um, to invite him into, to be at the center of their heart or their life. You give him your heart. And uh, it creates a certain personal relationship with Jesus that's very real. And you'll walk with him and you'll come to know him. Okay, uh, how else? I'm going to say, we're going to call, say, we're going to give another one that I'm going to call little tradition, but I'm going to, I'm going to add trust. Okay? So this one is people who you love and that you trust and you respect have told you their experience of Jesus. So if I want to get to know your wife or your best friend or your uh, parent, then um, I could get to know them this way, but say they're not around or they're in another state or something like this. Um, this would be like more of a kind of a personal encounter. Um, this one is just, I trust you to tell me about who they are. And then I believe that I know them uh, to a certain degree. And now as, as all of these things come together, you kind of have this collection of ways of encountering Jesus and coming to know Jesus. Um, some of them are built on, um, on, yeah, traditions that have to be passed down, okay? So uh, in this case, if you're relying on the trust of someone else, then, uh, or you're trusting someone else, and you're relying on their words about someone, um, then you, it's not an immediate experience with them, right? Um, in prayer, as much as we do encounter the person of Jesus, we do hear the voice of Jesus, it's not usually audible. It's not usually unmediated. It's um, unless you're having like weird mystical phenomena. Any of you have weird like visions and uh, hear voices? <laughs> That's a trick question because I'm not talking about this. That would be like go to the psychiatrist. <laughs> Um, yeah, so a lot of this is not um, unmediated. Jesus lived and died and rose and ascended into heaven a long time ago. Um, so the way that we receive much of what we know about Jesus and even the means of communicating with him and contacting him comes from a whole history, 2,000 years, of people passing on what they know about Jesus. And not only the facts of what they know about Jesus, like of the biblical and the tradition and this trust piece but even the experience of how do you encounter Jesus uh, what does Jesus mean to us what did um, what can he do for your life what does salvation mean you know? uh, 
Um, what, what is the purpose of Jesus? All of these things have to be passed on to us. And, um, and then the question becomes, like, how, how are those passed down? You know, how did we get sacraments? How did we get um, our traditions of prayer and our ideas that they can connect us and that sort of conviction that we're actually interacting with someone and not an imaginary thing? Um, yeah. How, do we, how did our parents or our friends or a teacher come to learn about these things and pass it down? So the question about scripture and tradition that we're getting to here is, we all want to know Jesus, we believe that he can be known, and we live 2,000 years after he's gone away. And we live in this time of the presence of the Holy Spirit, inspiring each one of us personally through our baptism, um, when we're given uh, new life with Jesus, um, and also uh, the whole community. How does the Holy Spirit guide um, the whole community? Okay, and there's different. Uh, okay, so there's different convictions about this through um, through time. I don't know if. Well, let's. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. Then should we get into the? Should we get into the the Protestant Reformation yet? Not yet. We'll do that after the break. So, we're going to get to the point where um, Christians start disagreeing about how you come to know Jesus. Uh, that happens, well, I mean, in some way it's happened for the last 2,000 years. But there was a huge break in, um, in the years, in the mid-1500s. Um, before that, it was pretty well given that um, you could know Jesus through Scripture and that you that the uh, interpretation and teaching of how scripture should be understood and the way that the Holy Spirit acts in teaching Jesus throughout time um, can come from a collection of the bishops and the teaching of the church and the sense of everybody. Question in the back. Couldn't we say that it's a choice to get to know Jesus? Oh yeah, well it has to be, right? Um, yeah, you're not gonna get to know anybody if you don't make the choice. But I, I um, like Stephanie, like to say, a, a cradle Catholic, right? I mean, that's from birth. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with the sacraments and the Bible and the prayer and the tradition, obviously, comes from my whole entire family on both mm -hmm. maternal and paternal sides. But I choose, as an adult, to believe yeah. what I have been taught. Yeah. Yeah. But what so, happens to people that all of a sudden decide not to choose, to choose? Yeah, or never choose. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can take a lot of it for granted. People will give you a lot of information about Jesus. I think you would know Jesus that way. I think a lot of Catholics know Jesus, but don't choose. And I think what it comes down to is you're choosing whether or not there's any meaning for you in the story of Jesus. Does it matter to you? Do you care? Um, does it relate to your life? So... Uh, Kind of example that I give that's helpful, I don't know, um, is say you come to someone and you say, um, I have cancer. I heard that, that you are a surgeon. Or no, I heard that your um, spouse is a, a surgeon. Tell me about them. Okay, are you gonna start in with the biography kind of, here's some facts about their childhood or something? No, you're asking about a specific thing. How can that person save me? 
Why should I want to relate to that person? And in this case, unless you ask that question of why should this Jesus mean anything to me, it, it doesn't matter if you know anything about it. You know? um, unless you start relating to him personally, then, um, and that's the choice that has to be made. Like, do I want to walk this way as a Catholic? Do I choose this religious life as a way of knowing and loving this, this Jesus? Or is it just something that, you know, somebody, somebody else cares about and they passed on to me? Maybe I care about it because my parents like it. You know, I do marriage prep. A lot of people care about it because their parents like it. Um, and they know some stuff about it. And they, maybe they respect it. But they don't really, they haven't really chosen it. And they don't, they don't know why they should. You know, what does Jesus mean to me? So I think that's part of that invitation of, that every, every Christian needs to have. And that's kind of part of what happens with the adulthood. Is, um, Jesus coming to us at some point and saying, do you want to follow me? Do you want to know me? Um, do you need salvation? Um, and that's where the choice comes in. Yes, I'm going to pursue you and, uh, and pursue your mission. Um, so even if we take a lot for granted, I do think we can know Jesus just from a lot of what we've been taught. Um, but that you can know a lot about something and it doesn't matter at all. Does that make sense? Yes. Some sense. So, question, like if I'm coming in, I'm Catholic, so I get the whole scripture tradition perspective. But if I'm coming at it from the perspective of a non-Christian, non-Catholic person and just trying to understand like well how do we know Jesus is really God and Father Brian gave a great example last week he said well you know you have 10 of his 12 disciples that were willing to essentially die for him yeah like is there other evidence like that that's compelling for someone who's a non-Christian at all to so I feel like when you throw out the scripture tradition it's like okay great but like that doesn't mean much to me as a non-Christian I mean I get yeah. it as a Catholic but if yeah, so we're tell someone who's a non-believer, like what other evidence is there, like the you know disciples, ten of those twelve of them dying for him? Like, is there other yeah. anecdotal things like that that make the case like, yeah, Jesus actually is yeah. God beyond just and the meaning of history, or someone you know, right. something worth knowing, something worth practicing, or whatever. Right. Um, Father Brian is much better at this. <laughs> um, I think on the kind of meta level all the time, and so for me, it's very inspiring. Um, to sort of make logical connections. So I think he's given you some of the like um, the, the natural arg arguments, like the logical arguments, proofs mm -hmm. for God. Yeah, like yeah. that, but then it's like Which proving is, that Jesus is Yeah, that. those can tell you them. basically that there is a creator or something, but it doesn't necessarily tell you much about Jesus, right? right? So for me, that story that I told you at the beginning is very important. It's like how um, that the world is messed up and needs help. And that uh, it makes sense to me. Um, and, and that goes a long way for me, is understanding that um, we're in this situation that we can't work ourselves out of. How are we going to get ourselves out? And um, if it's just relying on our conjecture about kind of what's beyond, then we'll never really get anywhere. Uh, but for me, it's really the fact that the story checks out um, happens to be very important to me. That Jesus. Um, is God breaking through and becoming one of us so that we can know God and know the way, you know, the self-sacrificing way. Um, yeah, how many how, proofs for, yeah, the, like, I don't know, presence of Jesus, you'd have to break it down to 
Um, I like this thing about the, the martyrdom of the apostles, their conviction. Yeah. I mean, that like that makes a strong case. That, okay, this guy's that these people are willing to die for him. There must be a lot of evidence that he was actually God. And he had just mentioned last class. Okay, there's a bunch of other sort of things like that that are compelling cases for. Yeah, I mean, okay, so some some pieces of evidence. You can point to um, miracles throughout history that they can be ignored. Um, You can point to uh, saints. That's one of my favorites. But if you don't don't know, you don't really care, you might not care about that either. But it was very inspiring for me at a time when I didn't believe, when I um, started encountering the reading the works of John Paul II and Mother Teresa just said these people are exceptionally inspiring what the hell is going on or what the heaven is going on uh, <laughs> that yeah, it's like proof of the Holy Spirit and then even personal conviction like the testimony this is who Jesus is this is what he's done in my life and I just know him to be true um, you'll have to ask him about other proofs I'm yeah, like I, I mean, said it's like going out of here talking to some person who's not a Christian or a Catholic it's, yeah I just don't feel like that resonates with someone who's a sort of casual believer in God, yeah. not necessarily Christianity per se, or Catholicism per se. And so it is. It's tough. I think um, it, when I have those conversations, I usually try to bring it in, like, do you want to know God? Does that matter? Right. And if you do, then how how are we going to come to know God? Yeah. And if he doesn't make himself known, then we're kind of stuck. Although you could argue that there's other religions that sort of have God made known. The Hindus have lots of, lots of gods who are kind of around and present or whatever. So I, I don't know. I'll think about that one. I'll try to give you better stuff. All right. Are we ready for a break? Steph says yes. <laughs> Great. Five minutes. One thing I forgot to say at the beginning is there's a podcast called Catholic Stuff You Should Know, which is a pretty well-known podcast in the Catholic world. I've heard it's good. And Father Mike <laughs> is on the podcast. No way. But um, it's actually a really good podcast if you have questions and you are new to Catholicism or if you are Catholic and, you ha- and you're wanting to go deeper in your faith. Basically, it's good for this, ca- this class. So I recommend you download it. Shameless plug. Catholic stuff you should know. Yeah. Okay, the break is continuing. We'll be back in three minutes.
that arose in, uh, among Christians about uh, the way that God reveals himself and the way that we come to know Jesus. So when I was a kid, I went to a Lutheran school, Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran School. Any alumni? 
and uh, and my mom grew up Lutheran, so um, I learned to um, love the Bible from a very uh, young age. And there's a whole culture about loving the Bible, um, in, in among the you know, well, all the Christians. I I would say at least at least me, but. There's songs in the Lutheran church. And I don't know if there are elsewhere among our uh, non-Catholic uh, Christian brothers and sisters, but we had one that said, it was like this, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah? Yeah. You remember that one? Yeah. Uh, so why do you know that Jesus loves you? Because you read it in the Bible. Are we sing this song? Right? Because you read it in the Bible, and somebody taught you that song, and now you know that Jesus loves you. Um, there was another one that says, The B-I-B-L-E, yeah, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Have you heard that one? No. Nice. Yeah, I'll take some singing lessons and stuff. But, uh, so, yeah, we stand alone. This is it. So there's a concept that's expressed in this little song for the kids called Sola Scriptura. And it says that the way that you know anything about God is from the Bible. It's from reading it in the Bible. And that when you pick up your Bible, um, everything in there is going to be immediately accessible to you. Understanding Jesus, understanding the words of the Bible are going to be immediately accessible to you because you're inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's an interesting concept. I think it would be really nice if it were true, uh, but it's not so easy to interpret the Bible. And I think proof of that, um, or at least one indication of that, is the, um, that there's, there's over a thousand different denominations of Christians uh, just in our country. And that comes from a thousand more um, different interpretations of the same Bible, right? Um, different ideas about the uh, teaching of Jesus, meaning of his life, how to interpret different phrases and terms, different whole systems of ideas like called theology that come up from um, the various interpretations of little pieces of the Bible. Um, so if you're stuck with, uh, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, or uh, I, I, we love the scripture. You know? So the question is, like, how do we come to know uh, the best interpretation of the Bible? Or maybe more importantly, how can Christians agree about interpreting the Bible? What it means? Because um, it, it could mean a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, there's a certain core that everybody agrees upon. You know, Jesus saves us. Um, Jesus is God who is alive. Um, God who became a human being. Um, there's some kind of particular tenets of the faith, but we want it all. You know, there's not going to be Christian unity unless we have uh, a common conviction. Acts 4 talks about how the earliest church was of one mind and one heart because of the Holy Spirit. Um, Acts 2.42 talks about the practice of the earliest church. This was before there was a Bible. Um, the practice of the earliest church was um, getting together for, um, for prayer and for the breaking of the bread and for the teaching of the apostles. Um, this is the way that people came to know Jesus. And 
shared a common Christian life together. And, uh, and so the problem is this kind of question of how do we pass on the right interpretation of, of the scripture. I like this, um, I ran into this example of um, the, the problem of interpretation that uh, I'd like to try to work. <laughs> and it was like this. Um, this guy says, I, I didn't say you stole uh, the money. Okay, can you read? You can see that I didn't. I didn't say you stole the money. Uh, you know what that means? At first, it should be pretty, you know, kind of straightforward, right? Uh, but it can mean a lot of things. Uh, if you say I didn't say you stole the money, you might be saying somebody else said that, right? Uh, I didn't say you stole the money. Could mean, uh, but I implied it. I wrote it down. Uh, I didn't say you stole the money, but somebody else might have. Um, I didn't say you stole the money, but you stole probably something else, right? Uh, there's a lot of ways to interpret words. And the Bible gives us a lot of words that people wrote um, to pass on the tradition of Jesus. But it requires a, a whole um, method or a unity, agreement upon how to interpret um, what the Bible's can be saying to us. So Catholics put the Bible, um, we talked about Holy Scripture. You can just consider, uh, this This is another word for Bible, um, for shorthand. Holy writings. When Jesus was talking about um, how he would interpret the sacred scripture, there was no New Testament, no Paul, no Gospels, or anything like that. He's talking about Jewish scriptures. But that's the word uh, that they're using. Eventually, we get the uh, the addition of the New Testament writings, that is, the writings from the people who lived around Jesus. And we're trying to write down not only facts about his life, but trying to communicate this, uh, this message of why he's important. They're trying to sell the story of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the idea of Jesus, make an invitation for people to choose um, this person and to have a relationship with him and be a part of a community that has a relationship with him. Okay, so uh, you have this problem of what happens if you're on, on your own um, in trying to interpret the scriptures. And so even in the second century, this was known, um, St. Irenaeus, uh, who was, kind of came to his, his writing for around 180 AD, um, says this about the church and how it works. But in order to keep the gospel forever whole and alive within the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors, handing over to them the authority to teach in their own place. So the idea is that you have this group of people who, uh, they know Jesus. I'm a terrible artist, really. Uh, here's his locks, he's a good Jew. Um, and uh, you have the apostles who know Jesus and then they know him and know what to write about him uh, through the influence of the Holy Spirit inspiring them 
And then there's a promise of Jesus that when they choose leaders for the church, this authority by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is passed on to their successors. And from their successors to their successors. From their successors to their successors. And this is the way that um, Catholics talk about uh, tradition with a big T, is that the way that we understand the Holy Spirit to be working in the church, um, in terms of revelation of Jesus, is that in every age and throughout time, that the Holy Spirit is going to inspire the successors of the apostles and who are leaders among the community. So the Holy Spirit is inspiring each person, but each person doesn't have the privileged kind of uh, interpretation of, of uh, the life with Jesus. They can't say, because I know Jesus from my prayer, I can tell you everything about him authoritatively. Um, it's not a democratic process. It's not like get all the Christians together and we can agree about who Jesus is or how to interpret the scriptures. Um, it's that the Holy Spirit has, has created a teaching office in the church and uh, that Jesus had promised in these scriptures that we had read you know, that, that he would send the Holy Spirit who would reveal to you all things. And that this, um, this succession of the apostles and the authority in the church keeps the whole truth of who Jesus was that the apostles tried to articulate or did articulate, but they didn't tell us everything, um, that it keeps it intact. So we believe that the Holy Spirit continues to perpetuate these things so they don't get lost. Have you ever played that weird game, uh, the telephone game? You remember that one? Someone on this side of the room is told a phrase and then they whisper it to someone else down the line and by the end, it's something totally, totally different. Um, the, the, the idea is that the Holy Spirit guards the passing from one generation to the next of the truth of Jesus and, um, and how to interpret the scriptures, how to hear those things, um, fully understand Jesus in, as, um, in the whole truth and in a living truth so that we can pass it on. Um, yeah, and that works both in the... So that, that's where we get to this idea of um, these different ways that we can um, come to know Jesus. The sacraments that Jesus taught, Catholics believe are exactly the sacraments that we practice. That the prayers that he taught are the prayers that we pray. That the, the uh, practices that we try to, um, yeah, like the moral life, the values that he had, we believe that we're perpetuating 2,000 years later exactly how Jesus wanted it, exactly how Jesus taught it. Um, it's a pretty bold claim, but uh, it's the only thing that holds the unity of the tradition throughout time together. And nothing could be lost through this sort of um, telephone game from one generation to the next. And it's remarkable if you look at the history of uh, the church that throughout time, uh, Catholics throughout 2,000 years have uh, kept the same beliefs, the same um, teachings, and the same practices um, throughout that, that whole length of time. While the whole world changes, cultures, empires rise and fall, uh, new technology changes, thing, new, new ideas come and go, um, the teaching of the church has been consistent throughout time. So this is one of the fun things that uh, are very 
worthwhile. Um, I like to encourage our uh, Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, non-Catholic Christians, to look at the, um, the interpretation of Jesus throughout time. Look at the meaning of Jesus and his message. Look at the practice of the church um, from the very beginning and through the 2,000 years of Christian history. And notice how consistent it is up until uh, the time of the Reformation, uh, those 1500s. Um, yeah. I was just going to say, could you, do you have the reference for the um, Irenaeus? Irenaeus um, is from uh, Against Heresy 331. Okay, and it's also quoted in, um, it's quoted in the Catechism. So I'll find that reference for you, okay. too. Um, someone asked, what about the Gnostic Gospels? He was just asked about the Gnostic Gospels a lot from his friend in Northern Alaska. Are they, are they Gospels in the Old or the New Testament? Yeah, that's a good question. Gnostic Gospels. Have you, have you heard of Gnostic Gospels? Okay, so I'll try to explain that. You get this one? Jesus with the locks? <laughs> have you seen Hasidic Jews? You probably should have a hat. Right <laughs> so um, we got Jesus. He's, uh, die, he, he dies and rises about 33 AD. Then for the first, um, for the first 60, 65 years of the, of the church, you have the development of the New Testament uh, writings. So those are the writings in our Bible. They happen up to about 100 AD, the development of those scriptures. So if you think that the church didn't have, here's another problem for the, the B-I-B-L-E, is there wasn't a B-I-B-L-E for the first hundred years of Christianity. That was writings that were being produced by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the experience of the people who were writing them. Okay, time goes on. In about the third century, let's say, eh, let's go late, late second century. About 180 AD to 400 AD. You have the production of Gnostic Gospels. Okay, so the, here you have the production of the Gospels that we know. So those are Mar Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written during this period. Um, and then you have a lot of different interpretation of the life of Jesus and the meaning of Jesus that happens over time. Where there are successors of the bishops, you don't find a lot of division and breaking out. But at a certain point, in, um, especially in Egypt and in uh, North Africa, you have this strain of uh, Christians that break away from the tradition, and they have um, this idea that you are only saved if you are involved in the secret rituals of the cult, and if you uh, come to know their secrets about Jesus. Um, so they have secret knowledge, that's saving knowledge. It's an esoteric phenomenon. Gnosis means, uh, Gnostic means you know something. Um, this is happening 200 years uh, to 400 years after Jesus lived. Okay, and they're writing uh, their own versions of Jesus's life. So they make up their own stories. It's probably something like fan fiction. But some of these Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel, um, of, Mary. Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, um, 
they will make claims like uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Um, they have Jesus um, kind of like, uh, there's one where that has Jesus uh, as a child and someone steals, he's playing with the birds, he has pet birds. Someone steals his birds so he curses them and they die, other children. <laughs> Um, they, they make up all these stories about Jesus that is according to their ideas about what they want him to kind of fit into their system. Um, so it's totally made up stuff by people who had no contact with Jesus. Um, they named them as fan fiction or maybe as like deceptively um, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Mary. Um, yeah, um, Something similar with like the invention of literature is, for example, um, the Mormon literature, the Book of Mormon, is a, a new telling of the, the Old Testament. It takes up where the Old Testament gets kind of cloudy, and then it makes up new stories about some lost tribesmen. Um, so that's kind of how the Gnostic Gospels work. You have people who are kind of on the outskirts of Christianity who want to reinvent their Jesus, so they write new Gospels. But it happens way, way late. There's nothing really credible about them. There's conspiracy theories, but they don't belong at all, even proximate to the time of Jesus. So we don't really worry about them or take them seriously. No good historian is going to say that there's any uh, any Gnostic gospel that has any historical value. Does that answer it? Gnostic? So far, yeah. Oh, did you already like turn the wheel? Yep. Um, so I know that there's all these several books Yeah. Oh boy. Um, no, I, it's just a matter of like, explaining it, but I think I can. Okay. So, um, you have. Oh wait, can you repeat the question? Oh yeah. So the question is, why is the Catholic Bible different than the Protestant Bible? Why do we have a bunch more books, like eleven more books? Um, so, let's see. You have. These 76 books that for the first uh, 1,500 years of Christianity were considered inspired, um, so Catholic inspired books. That means um, that you should read them at mass. People should pay extra attention to them. We consider them inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, these come from a tradition of using um, of using an Old Testament that the apostles themselves used, which is called, uh, a Greek Old Testament. Okay, so then we're using seventy six books. Then um, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, Luther comes along and he says, um, "This is probably not the books." of the Old Testament that Jesus was looking at because Jesus was an Aramaic speaker and a Hebrew speaker and a Jew and they didn't like Greek. They didn't like the Greek people, they didn't like the Greek language and so he said um, the, the Bible, the Old Testament we should use is the one that the Jews of his time, Luther's time, were using as their <coughs> sacred scripture. Um, so I'm gonna get the numbers wrong. Is it 11 books? Oh, yeah. It's like 
Sixty-six. Is it seventy-six in the Catholic? <laughs> uh, books like Sirach, First and Second Maccabees, um, Tobit, Judith. Um, there's endings to Daniel that are um, Bell and the Dragon and um, the story about this little kid judge. Um, Plus, okay, so if we said, what did we say, 11, 66, 65? Yeah. Okay. Well, if you subtract 11, it's 65. All right. Anyway, somewhere in there. Uh, <laughs> these were, okay, so Jewish books. Yeah, in seven chapters in Esther and two chapters in the story of Daniel. Oh. In 15, what? Let's do the posting there. Oxford Confessional. Okay, so Luther says we should use Jewish books because Jesus was a Jew. But he's looking at Judaism of his time, of 15, mid-1500s, mid beginning of the 15, uh, 16th century. And he wasn't looking and was not thinking on the fact that the Jews of Jesus' time were using an Old Testament that included books that he takes out. So rather than saying we have extra books, I like to say that they're missing, uh, what is that, 11 books? 11 books that the earliest Christians, the apostles, were using. And some of those are actually quoted in the New Testament. You have quotes from these books that uh, eventually are taken out. Um, because they were, Luther says only the, the books that were written in Hebrew were going to keep in our Bible. Uh, any of the original texts that were written in Greek. We've since discovered with the, with the Dead Sea Scrolls that some of those books were originally written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek, but that doesn't really matter a whole lot. Um, the idea for us is that these, for 1,500 years, were considered the inspired um, scriptures and that some of them are quoted in the New Testament. So we know that the apostles were looking at them and using them to write uh, their own uh, texts. Does that make some sense? Something. Um, let's see. Do I want to say anything else about scripture and tradition? Do you understand the point of the succession of the apostles? Um, now, we consider um, our own bishops to be um, in the same line of succession. You can trace their family trees of bishops there's long kind of lineages of the family trees. One bishop, to ordain a bishop in, a, in the Catholic Church, you have to have um, three, three bishops get together and ordain that bishop. Lay, his hand, lay their hands on him, uh, pray the prayers of ordination, and then um, they're officially, validly ordained a bishop. And we believe that that has been a, a process of succession throughout time. And that the Holy Spirit uh, guards, safeguards, and protects uh, the truth of their um, truth of their teaching, so that they're not um, teaching heresy, going astray, coming up with new things. None of this tradition for Catholics can contradict anything in the Bible. So uh, it's important to know that although we have this idea that the Holy Spirit continues to inspire us to understand Jesus perfectly, 
um, we don't believe that the Holy Spirit can um, introduce anything new that would contradict the Bible. So we go back to the Bible as the rule of faith. Um, you're always checking these kind of new ideas um, against the Bible. It's really an unfolding uh, process of understanding uh, Jesus and the world more, uh, more fully through time. Scripture and tradition. Yeah, any other questions? I have one. Um, so, with what you were saying about um, bishops and the Holy Spirit guarding um, kind of the revelation of Scripture and tradition and teaching over time, um, what does the Catholic Church kind of teach about bishops that kind of go astray or are not necessarily? Yeah, and it's happened a lot, unfortunately. So it's not the bishop individually. Okay, so uh, what happens if a bishop is wrong? What if what happens if a bishop goes his own way and teaches whatever he wants? Um, and it happens frequently enough. So it's not the individual bishop who is, um, we might use the word infallible, can't be wrong. Um, the bishops work together as a whole. They work together as a college. So if one bishop is teaching something that's totally wrong, it's the role of all of the Catholics to tell them, hey, you're totally wrong. And um, to, well, suppress that voice. <laughs> uh, not to really throw them out. Um, and the role of the rest of the bishops. Um, eventually, it becomes a question of um, the Pope being able, as kind of like the head bishop and the bridge between the bishops, kind of a hub of the network, to um, say, you're not allowed to talk anymore. They declare him a heretic and then can't, can't uh, preach anymore, can't teach. So the idea is really collective. And it, uh, the Holy Spirit working with the church, preserving the truth, um, isn't the privilege of any one person. And even the Pope, the Pope uh, is held in check by um, the College of Bishops, bishops um, working together. And even times throughout the history of the church, the, the Catholic faithful have had to tell the, to tell the bishop, you're silent, you're done. Um, and we have to be careful with that because it's important that we have that point of unity among, from the bishops and that we trust that uh, the Holy Spirit is not trying to like, fool us and you know, get us in trouble, but he's, he's trying to communicate that saving truth through time and it's mysterious you know if you study if you study history you'll be both very impressed about the uh, coherent um, and consistent message of Christianity you know, passed on through tradition you also be you also wonder how are there so many crazy people uh, that get a lot of things wrong and yet it hasn't ruined the whole the ship hasn't crashed. Um, that's part of the, the beautiful reality of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's one of those mysteries of faith, you know, um, recognizing that this is, this is real, kind of wondering how that works. Does that make sense about the bishop? It's not just him and the, him and the Holy Spirit. Nobody gets just me and the Holy Spirit. Yes. What's your take on like the news today about uh, with Pope Francis? 
and just kind of like civil unions. Three minutes away. Three minutes away. It's a good. It's an important question, and it relates to what we're talking about right here. Um, three minutes <laughs> probably won't do. So he, he was asking, what about uh, Pope Francis's comments that have made the news um, this what today? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so Pope Francis's comments, as best I know it, I don't want to misreport it, and there's a lot of misreporting. Um, I watched a, like a 40-second clip of, uh, about a documentary that's coming up where he gave interviews, and one of the things he said in the interview was that he was, uh, he was asked about um, homosexual marriage, and um, in the course of discussing that, uh, you get a little tiny clip, so I want to I want to see it in more context before I make much of it. Uh, but he he says that uh, homosexuals deserve to have family. You know, everyone deserves to have family. Um, they can all they they need to be a part of the Christian family um, or part of the family. He doesn't say Christian, but I think that's the assumption. And then he says something about we need to enact laws that help to protect that, and he and he refers to civil unions. Um, so this has become very controversial very quick um, because the Catholic stance has been very consistently that um, our category in America about civil unions is something that we don't support. Um, that we don't, uh, we don't support uh, homosexual marriage and that um, this, the idea of civil unions is one, not good for society and then also um, not not within the, the natural order. So you'll probably get into those questions with Father Brian. Uh, <laughs> how to make sense of it. Well, I guess, but, but the, I guess what the point with the, with the Pope is it, this is a real tricky balance where um, what he's saying is important for the whole church, but he doesn't speak on behalf of the whole church. So what he says off the cuff, which, what he says off the cuff is something that is worth hearing and uh, we should really respect and take into account, but it doesn't define the teaching of the church. The only way that the Pope can define the teaching of the church um, is when all of the bishops are together, they've all discussed it, they've all come up with an idea, and then the Pope puts his stamp on it. The Pope doesn't just talk from voice of God. So because we have a globalized world and he has Twitter, and we have, you know, we can hear an interview clip um, the same day, um, that can be confusing to a lot of people. So um, we have to be careful to, um, one, to, to, to know that he's not an absolute authority. We don't have a dictator, we don't have a voice of God, we don't have a prophet, you know. Um, and then two, to understand that, I, and I think this is the case, is that things are very easily hijacked and then become clickbait and people say whatever they want to say. So you got headlines from all the news agencies in America that are saying, Pope is reinventing the church teaching and he's into, Catholic, he's into gay marriage and um, Catholics have been wrong for a long time and everything. I don't think he meant that, <laughs> but we'll have to see. You know, They'll have to clarify from the Vatican. Um, I wonder what he means by civil unions. I, that means a lot of different things around the world. So it's very easy for us to say, oh, we voted on that. It means something very specific to us. But I'm not sure he might mean that.
So I, it's, a, it's an important question. And, um, it, it, tests, I, it tests Catholics. You know, I think this is a tricky point where um, when your bishop says something, when your pastor says something, when your priest says something, when an RCIA teacher says something, you are, we're always free and we have to, we have to um, judge things according to our conscience and with our intellect. We're not just, hey, spoon feed me, people. Don't spoon feed me, Jesus. Um, we're meant to, to wrestle with things. But also to trust that the truth of Jesus, his practice, his own teachings, really are being passed down um, without, um, without error, without things being lost in time. So, but that process isn't just the voice of the Pope. Maybe that's your point. And I think a lot of, of non-Catholics think that's true about the way we look at the Pope, that he's like the Jesus voice. He's the Jesus guy. He doesn't even have the locks. He doesn't even have the hat. <laughs> um, welcome to RCIA. Yay, thank you. <laughs> Do you want to have any other closing before we wrap it up? No, I just say, God bless you. Thank you for um, your love for God, your, your seeking, honestly, for your, sincer uh, your sincerity and your openness. Uh, thank you for engaging big questions and very important things for every individual. Um, thank you for those of you um, who are Christian, are given to Jesus, who would live for him. Thank you for being his friend. I love him, and I'm glad you're his friend. Um, we're united in that. Uh, the world needs Jesus. We need salvation. We need peace. Look at the world. Um, we need peace in our own hearts and conversion. And um, I hope you find that in um, in the church, in the sacraments, and your encounter with Scripture. And um, and as you go along in this process of RCIA, I just promise you my prayers. Um, I'll try to show up once in a while, but Father Brian's really possessive of this class. So <laughs> <laughs> hard to get in. <laughs> All right, God bless you all. Okay, let's give a round of applause. Um, okay, thank you. We'll be back next week. And I sent you a link with the podcast information in the email already, so you can download that if you're interested. And then otherwise, just send any follow-up questions. And I'm sure Father Brian will also address the news that's going around, too. So come with questions. Have a great night. Good.